Welcome to Bina, KALW's program featuring creative voices from the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. In this series, we bring you remarkable artists and thinkers who've come to speak at the JCCSF as part of our Arts and Ideas program. On this edition of Bina, culinary historian and chef Michael W. Twitty returns to the JCCSF to discuss his new book, Kosher Soap. He's joined in conversation by Monkey Joe Singer. And now join Paul Gedulvik, CEO of the JCCSF, as he introduces our guests. Michael W. Twitty is a noted culinary and cultural historian and the creator of Afro Culinaria, the first blog devoted to African-American historic foodways and their legacies. He has been honored by FirstWeFeast.com as one of the 20 greatest food bloggers of all time and named one of the 50 people who are changing the South by Southern Living. HarperCollins released Twitty's The Cooking Gene in 2017, in which he traced his ancestry through food from West and Central Africa to America and from slavery to freedom. The Cooking Gene won the 2018 James Beard Award for Best Writing, as well as its Book of the Year, making him the first black author so awarded. He's here this evening to talk about his latest book, Kosher Soul, The Faith and Food Journey of an African-American Jew. Part memoir, part history, and part cookbook, it melds culinary chutzpah and soul into recipes and stories that showcase the overlapping flavors of the African and Jewish diasporas. Appearing in conversation with Michael Twitty this evening is Magid Joe Singer. Magid Singer serves the JCC of San Francisco as a community Jewish educator, where he founded Queer Core Talmud, a queer normative Sfara method Beit Midrash or learning community. Magid Singer is a professional Jewish educator, community and congregational leader, writer, and speaker. As an out trans man, Joseph is deeply committed to recognizing the holy in each human he encounters. Joseph seamlessly engages his students in conversation about Jewish spirit, text, story, tradition, and being. He is a past congregational leader of Chochmat Halev and of the Kosai Jewish community. His teachings can be found in Torah queries, balancing on the Mechitza, at GTU and Eli Talks. And now, let's give a warm JCCSF welcome to Michael Twitty and Maggie Joe Singer. Thank you all. It is so nice to have living, yes. What an incredible blessing to be back in person and to have this holy person be the one who inaugurates our series this year. Um, You never give up. (laughs) You only just got started, my friend. This is only book three, right? Yeah, okay, we need some more. (laughs) But uh, I had the great pleasure of um, getting to 
you know, dive into this. And I would say it's cheesecake. You know, it's rich. You have really shown up. Not that you don't, but you've really shown up in these pages in really courageous and brave ways and um, in funny ways and, um, and generous ways. Um, let's start with the most obvious thing. Um, let's take a look at one of these menus. Okay, and maybe sure. we can just play with that for a second. Sure. So in the back of the book, Michael has put a bunch of um, sample menus um, based on this, you know, this journey that you've been on of, of the fusion, the places of tension, the places of, um, of funny, the bringing, the bringing of together. So um, because we're here in the Great Bay Area where we've got like the weirdest, right? Everybody here knows that when you invite somebody to dinner, you have to find out what you can't serve, right? Isn't that right? Yeah, and that's love. And let me tell you something. When you don't serve those things and you figure out how to make something with water, because at the end of the day, that's all you're left with, um, that is creativity and that is love. So let's go with the Vegibor Shabbat dinner. So challah or vegan challah, black-eyed pea hummus, Ethiopian collards uh, or kosher sole collards, ginger cumin and garlic roasted vegetables, couscous or millet salad, green salad with peach balsamic vinaigrette, yam kugel, and fresh fruit. I would love you to talk a little bit about those kosher sole collards. Okay. Because there is a good story with that in this book. So you can, so one of the, (laughs) if you're in a black kitchen, your best friend, well, maybe not always your best friend, is that red and orange bottle of lorries. If you're really, if you're really bougie, it's McCormick. (laughs) Right. And And if you're really out there, it's like some homemade blend, your own blend of season salt. If you're Jewish, it's awesome chicken broth. Yes. And it, there's no chicken in it. It's just... Not even it, close. It's, now it's consomme. But I'm promising you. It's like, it's like the Jewish adobo. Like, you put that in anything, oh my God. And the thing, the only thing about it is not just Ashkenazi, it's kol yehudim. Because, like, everybody, you know, I don't care if it's, like, you know, tabit. I don't care if it's plov. I don't care if it's kugel. You put the, the spoonful of the awesome in it, everybody goes, this is so tasty. <laughs> of course it's tasty. It's salt, <laughs> sugar, and fat, for God's sakes. <laughs> With a little bit of onion. Mitsibilis. You know what? I, 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 I rue the day I ever had middle school. Or, I taught Hebrew school for 15 years. I rue the day I ever said the word sibilis in front of them. I'm lucky I didn't lose my job. Mr. Twitty, tell us about syphilis today. <laughs> no, sibilis. Mitsibilis, which is Yiddish for onion, right? Yes, it is. So, um, <laughs> y'all are like, oh, wow. There are, uh. So, um, you know, my next book, my next book is about, you know, being queer in the kitchen. So I've decided to be called Eggplants and Peaches. So. <laughs> so, um, but for real, it's, it's, it's kind of like um, the one that's done without, done with the other. I put kosher lamb bacon in and grow and behold. So now that there are better choices 
for a sustainable kosher meat. If you choose to go that route, you can do that. But if you don't, you don't. And the reason why the veggievore and, and vegetarian, vegan, slash vegan, whatever you want to do, is so important is because, you know, in the in the black in black Jewish traditions that are not part of the mainstream community, vegetarianism has been has, has long been an important theme. Now I want to be very careful about what I say because this is a very controversial issue even among Jews of color. Because there are different communities, they are not all Halakha communities, but they are certainly adjacent. And there are lots of people who come in and out of that world into mainstream Judaism and back and forth. So there is a deep vegetarian, soul vegan, that whole, that's, a, that's a whole black Hebrew movement. Not the, not the people in the corner with the, with the, the funkadelic cast off clothes. Not those people. You know, they're like, you're, you're black, you're white, we hate all y'all. That's not them. <laughs> We're talking about the, the more like Afrocentric biblical folk. And then there's a whole other group of us that basically came about in 100 years ago in, in Harlem and New York and other places that practiced basically traditional Orthodox Judaism. And then there's those of us who have gone in and out of the yeshiva world and gone in and out of mainstream Judaism and made our own path, or those of us who are just in there with the rest of us. And that's so important that these recipes that you see, the yam kugel, for example, comes from Mrs. Mildred Covert, a blessed memory, who I had the pleasure to meet in Louisiana. And she was, it was the real drive, I mean, real drive, Miss Daisy, the real deal. And she was no joke. She I mean, she had on the blood red shoes, the, the black and white leopard print blouse. And the only thing I heard from her was, get in. And that was it. <laughs> so I'm getting in the car with her and her former Hebrew school student who's now a journalist, going around New Orleans, learning about, you know, her matzo ball gumbo was the source of Marcy Cohen Ferris's tougher dissertation. Mm-hmm. But she had done three cookbooks. Wow. And those three cookbooks, she, she, she happily admitted, she said, the source is the black women that we grew up around yeah. and worked for these families on Dryad Street in New Orleans. Yeah. And so the yam kugel comes from her. So, the, you know, you can do a, you know, the vegan vegetarian thing is part of, I guess, I guess one should say that if people don't know black religious history, the black Muslim, um, um, some aspects of Yoruba, Kemetic, Akan religion in the African-American community, and um, the black Hebrew and black, Judea, black Jewish movements all had dietary aspects to how they practiced. Because the idea was, we're not just going to reform the, the, the mind but the body. So all that history is in that, one, is in that one menu. But also just like, hey, if not chickpeas and black-eyed peas. Hey, if not, you know, let's take the things that we have um, that we know have medicinal value, cumin, ginger, garlic, turmeric, you know, things like that. I mean, that's, we, you have to read these, these, there's a ton of menus. I even have like a Juneteenth cookout menu. Be careful who you invite to cookout. Um, let's just say right now, Ron DeSantis is not allowed to cookout ever. Um, my trans family, I stand with you. We're not going back. Mm-mm. So, no. But like, but like all the stuff that's in there, like Kwanzaa, but also uh, Sige, the traditional Ethiopian um, holiday happens in November. I want to pay homage to all of that. All of that. Amen. And, you know, creating those crossover places where you can create something that is going to be 
within 90 different boundaries, mm-hmm, right. right? Because so much of what you're talking about in this book, and you even, in, uh, at the beginning, you, you quote uh, Tema Smith, and she says, you know, um, th- this, this mashup, it's here to stay. Like, mm-hmm. none of us have got these crystalline identities anymore. The binary is, you know, 99.9% of us live somewhere in between the binary, Right, right, someplace in the spectrum, um, in truth of our full identities, mm-hmm. right? Not just gender, but the whole, the whole nine yards. And, and when we cross one of those boundaries, which is so much what your book is about, the moments when you find yourself crossing a boundary and somebody reacting to it, sometimes really offensively, sometimes really beautifully. Mm-hmm. Um, before I transitioned, I, I worked at Pete's and... Um, uh, at Pete's Coffee, which is, right, I was a barista there and then became a tasting trainer, whatever, it's a long story. But when I was still a barista, there was a guy who came in and I was in my neo-Hasidic days. I, uh, you know, so I was female presenting and I had tzitzit and uh, kippah and I said Baruch Hashem every 30 seconds. I was like on fire about Hasidism and everything. I was just burning it up. And this guy comes in and, and he, he, was an, he was an odd dude. And he, would, he was a little twitchy and kind of weird. And, and uh, he kept saying, you remind me of somebody. You, you, you remind me of somebody. And I was like, okay. And then the next day, the same thing. And fine, one day he comes in, and I'm working with my friend Martin, who's like Norwegian. And um, he slams his hand down on the, on the counter, and he goes, I got it. You remind me of Sammy Davis Jr., Oh no, me and Martin looked at each other and we were like, what? But what he, was saying, what he was saying is, you don't look Jewish to me. And, uh, neither, does, and neither does Sammy Davis Jr. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And it was like this, whoa. Like, that's what you see. Wow. Wow. Okay, that's interesting. But I think you, 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 I say that story because I kept thinking of it as I was reading the book. Yeah. Places that you've walked into. Constant. And they don't see. Constant. And they're trying to grab onto something that they can, you know, orient you. Yeah, they try to figure you out. What are you? You're listening to Culinary Historian and Chef. Michael W. Twitty, whose new book is Kosher Soul. He's joined in conversation by Monkey Joe Singer on Bina, a series featuring creative voices from the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. Bina is available as a podcast, and you can find it at kalw.org. You know, it's interesting because we talk about... Um, Transidentity, and when I began to really listen to my trans friends, especially Jewish ones, talk about how they presented what they said and how they everything, I was like, I so I'm, I'm getting some notes now, some things I can identify with. Hmm. Um, when I first became part of the community twenty some years ago, I had a black hat, I had the black suit, the white shirt. The sitsis, the big beard. My mother was was around then. 
blessed memory. She said, you'll never fly on a plane again. <laughs> but I mean, us for us, there was more than one. Yes, young black men who were in that particular community and communities at the time. You know, that fedora didn't mean the same thing it meant to other people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just Chabad, Chabad. Like it, was, it was channeling the, the respect and stature of our grandfathers. Mm-hmm. Our grandfathers never, never, I mean, think 40s, 50s, 30s, okay? The, the hat, the suit, all the time. Now you, I promise you, you will hardly find a picture of a black grandfather from that time that don't have a suit and hat on. The dignity, the pride, all the, all the pictures of them going to, I mean, there's a picture somewhere of my grandparents going to church with the, with the kids, all dressed up, everybody's dressed up. So for us, that, I mean, that does have a, had a certain re- resonance. But how do you get people to go away to, to accept that, but also accept the fact that you're also wearing the, the uniform, as Manishana puts it, of the community, and there are many uniforms. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, I, I may do that in the future, but if right now, um, this is what I do. Um, but it's, it's just like, you're, the get, it gets to the point where we've begun to say to ourselves and say to other people, I am a citizen. I am not a guest. Amen. Yes. And I am very, I told my students, I said, you know, part of what, what goes on is I want you to be able to go into the world with that same mentality. Because some of my kids thought, oh, everything's good for me. I said, oh, you were from a reform synagogue, from a conservative synagogue. I said, is your mother Jewish? Well, no, but my father said, exactly. I see you as Jewish. I know that you're Jewish. I'm help raising you as a Jew. Your teacher, I'm helping raise you. But I want you to understand that there may, be, there may come a day when people may look past your white appearance and everything else and may judge you. And I began to realize that I was actually coaching my students in ways that I wished I had been coached yeah. or given wisdom. Because they weren't used to that. They, you know, they thought, I'm white, it's all good. I'm Jewish, it's all good. I've got a Jewish last name. I'm white, it's all good. And then I started hearing the stories. Well, I went to the hotel and they asked us the questions and they were like, oh. And I said, mm-mm, don't you dare. You look them in the face, you tell them, are you going to ask everybody who comes up in here if they're, if they're this, 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 I'll check all the boxes off? No. So go meet your God and leave it with, 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 with God. You know, you know that's something that we need to talk about. That Jews of color, Jews of African descent, bring incredibly valuable conversations and wisdom to the community. We don't even know our history. Not one person in this whole space has ever learned the history of black Jews in America in terms of barely even Jews in America in a religious school setting or other learning setting. You know, the first time we appear in the historical record of America is Solomon, the mulatto Jew. They can't even spell it right. J-U-E. In the 1600s in Massachusetts. You know how we know about him? From his arrest record. So the first Negro Jew that walked around in America was profiled. 
How deep is that? An arrest record for, for a brother on the street. What was his crime? Profaning the Christian Sabbath because he dared walk on the street on a Sunday. So, the intersection of the West's oldest sins, other than, of course, misogyny, ableism, homophobia, transphobia, <laughs> and, and then some classism, anti Semitism, and anti blackness, married in one document to a British, black, Jewish man born four centuries ago. Arkunta Kente, as it were. You know, that's deep. And then there's other people that follow him. I, went, I really wanted to write a whole ass chapter on our history that would go on for on and on. But then I realized, nah, we can all do that together. We can, we can work on that together. Because it's, it's, it's bricolage history. Marginalized and oppressed people don't have linear stories that are easy to trace. Mm-hmm. And it's also, people, when people think about religion, first of all, in, in African Atlantic context, they use the term African Atlantic a lot. Um, religion doesn't function the way you think it does. It's, it's not just strictly within the lines of Islam or Christianity or Judaism or Yoruba or Akan or Igbo tradition or Wolof tradition or Congo tradition, etc. It can actually be all of the above in different ways. And so that's important to mention. But for me, food is the thing that kind of like, I, I don't want people to get a kumbaya thing from when I talk about food, because I want people to understand something. Just because you eat the food of the other doesn't mean you understand or like the other. Nice. I mean, Stephen Miller loves Mexican food. <laughs> Hope he chokes on it. Taco bowl. But that doesn't mean he doesn't understand, understand it. I mean, the, I mean, there's this hilarious story from, you, you're going to love this one, from North Carolina from like two or three years ago. This, they had this huge Klan meeting, but they went to like one of the biggest black soul food businesses to get the catering. I would have done a kizzy and roots. I would have spat in every pot. But I mean, think about it. Like you, you yeah. still have to come to us for everything. 300 years later. Right. I mean, you, you, you have an original thought, do you? I mean, wow. But that's what, it, that's, what, that's what this is about. It's like the restaurants in Eastern Europe where, you, I don't know if you've heard about these, where they're Eastern European Jewish themed. Oh, yeah. Like yeah, yeah, Poland, yeah. Ukraine, it's like, yeah. ugh, really? And then, yeah. and then part of the, there's all this memorabilia, and then part of the, the, the joke is that you haggle over the price of the food. I'm like... Okay, bye. But why do these things persist? What, what, what's going on? I mean, that's another book question for another time. But for me, like, that's my world. You know, trying to understand where I fit um, as an American. We are all intersectional. Thank you, Dr. Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw. We are all intersectional. That term really does belong to what she defined it as originally about the situation of black women. But, if we can, but we can expand it out a little bit more to understand that not, we are all part of this interesting matrix of, of a new life that our ancestors could never have dreamed of. Yeah. So. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, and we're all holding a history. Yes. Many histories. We yes. all are holding many histories. And, you know, we, we live in a time of forgetfulness. Mm-hmm. You know, I, uh, I had a little quote here. I don't even know where it came from. It was on my desk. I don't know why I wrote it down, but it seemed like something that was going to come up tonight, and it just did. It's painful to remember loss, but it's worse to forget it. That's it. And we, we have been trained to forget it. We've been trained to, like, just make it nice, clean it up, don't go there. And I think that we're in a place right now where we have to go there. We have to go to the broken places. We have to look at the pieces. We have to decide what's worth carrying with us. You know, um, my, my teacher, B'nai Lappi Shlita, is, um, is famous for this, this thing that she calls the crash theory, which is that every master story... You know, the thing that answers all your questions. What am I supposed to, you know, we all are looking for that master story that's going to tell us who we are, how to love, what it all is about, what's going to happen when we die, what's my purpose, blah, 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 blah. That you could all come up with 95 more, you know, um, versions of what are those big questions. We all walk around that keep us awake at night. And we latch onto these answers. And we go, yes, I found the answer. This is great. I know what I'm, it's all about. And you go chugging along with that master story, and it will inevitably crash. Right. And when it crashes, human beings have a tendency to do one of three things. Buckle down on that master story. Deny the crash. This ain't happening. Queer people do this all the time. We go running back into the closet. We put off transition. We do all of that stuff because... It's so terrifying what's going to happen to me if I actually leave my master story. But then, you know, in, in the case of queerness, you fall in love with somebody. It makes it a lot easier to leave your master story when you've got a brand new juicy master story over that's like, I'm joining a lesbian separatist community in Oregon and it's, you know, there's going to be no man and it's going to be awesome, right? And you live in that master story for a while and you're like happy, happy. And then that one crashes because you're like, mm-hmm. I'm trans. Mm-hmm. And now I have to now I have to mm-hmm. walk between my master stories. Now I'm being pushed into what yes. she calls option three, where there is no master story. Right. The master story is a kaleidoscope, and you, my friend, are such a kaleidoscope. You are just the most sparkly, beautiful. You know the colors are all over the place, and they're broken, and you manage to make them beautiful. And that's why we want to talk to you. Like, how do we do that? Like, how do we heal ourselves? What you just said about, like, moving from, I thought I was this, I thought everything was settled, but it's not. What about the brokenness? What about the bad stuff? What about the, I think some of the old school wisdom in being black and Jewish or black or Jewish is partly through the food. Okay, so in the cooking gene, I talk about um, the, okay, I'm not going to pronounce it because I always mess up the word, but the Japanese art of using gold to repair things that are broken. Mm-hmm. And that is the model for, I thought, a beautiful way of expressing what it means to be an African-American. This is Bina, KALW series featuring artists and thinkers who have spoken at the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. Today's guest is culinary historian and chef Michael W. Twitty, whose new book is Kosher Soul, 
He's joined in conversation by Maki Joe Sinner. Bina is also available as a podcast, and you can find it at kalw.org. But even more so, all of this. So here's my, here's my spiel. I usually say this. So we're the only two peoples on the face of the earth that demand you eat awful things. <laughs> like, I, my mother, blessed memory, eat this. Why? It's nasty. <laughs> Why well, I gotta eat it then? You get, it's, it's nasty. <laughs> my mother was a perfectionist. Why should I eat horrible food? You won't, eat, you won't even allow like a, a burnt cookie. Go, no, no, I'm not gonna eat. You have to eat it, it's nasty. Jewish version. Eat it. Why? It's terrible. <laughs> then why, don't my, why am I eating it? Because it's terrible. You've never had anything as terrible in your life. Why do, you, why do we eat? That's my mother one day. Why do we have to eat our oppression? What's going on? Why, why, just, it's not just here and here and here. You know. And then we make those sounds, right? And if you're black, you make them part of your music. Oh, that's the blues. <laughs> you know, the blues was invented by, by a brother who had some bad chitlins. And it was like, it took, it took him like four days. And everybody heard him hollering and wailing. Started playing the guitar. <laughs> Lord, Lord, Lord. I'm gonna see you soon. Lord, cause these shitlings. Oh, my. That's the whole story right there. <laughs> Oh my god! <laughs> but like, we eat gefilte the fish for God's sake, which some of you adore. Um, I, you know, I guess some clubs you can you can join it that you got to be born in. I don't know. Um, it's like Doctor Celery's soda. It's like oh my, Doctor Brown Celery. So, yeah, that's an we call that an acquired taste. An acquired taste. <laughs> but you know, this is interesting. It's like, but then there's other things we do which are sort of painful but sort of pleasurable. Like, there is no reason to eat certain foods, except for hot sauce. Or Miss Wanda's chow chow. Like, the, 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 if I told you, eat this Africa hot chow chow, all jar to yourself. You could do that, but you're Michigan. <laughs> right? It's, it's, you know, I can tell you, eat the whole bottle of crane. Crane is delicious. But if you ate it by yourself, by itself, you'd be like, yeah, 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 you're a little off. So... They, so you have this rabbinic fiction known as gefiltevish, which you use a vehicle to get the, the heart the horseradish into your mouth. Mm-hmm. You have the other stuff to get the chow chow into your mouth, the hot sauce into your mouth. And that's our legal fiction that we use to excuse criminal behavior. <laughs> but only blacks and Jews do this. Also, when we sit around eating, we talk about the next damn next food we're going to have. <laughs> this is what... This is what people in constant exile do. <laughs> and it's like, what are we going to have next? You're sitting around at Seder. You have this, you're sitting around at Sunday dinner. You have all this food in front of you that someone took hours when I was prepared. 
but the only thing y'all can talk about is the next thing you're going to eat. Like, what? There's something, there's something very powerful about this. And I grew up in a multicultural area outside of Washington, D.C. Um, I, was, I was around the Chinese, the Italians, the Greeks, some of the oldest food cultures in the world. These things didn't happen. But black folks and Jewish folks have every single time. And uh, if I may say so, blacks, Jews, chicken, it's real and it's deep. It's just, mm-mm, mm-mm. It's a part of us. Onions is a part of us. You know, it's like the fact that we used food, excuse me, our mothers, the women used food to express love when they knew that their children could be the victims of enslavement or genocide mm-hmm. at any moment. They never knew when the ball was going to drop. So they prayed over the food. And those prayers became part of the traditions. You know, in, in Yiddish culture, tachinus, the idea that I'm going to pray, I mean, this is glorious, rich, vulnerable prayers where the women, women are like pouring their heart to God about a kugel, about a chillant, about a challah. And that sounds strange, but this was part of the Torah of the women, mm-hmm. along with the Sena Rain and other texts and things that they did. Mm-hmm. And I remember my grandmother, like the whole thing, it was their songs, there were prayers, there were all these things. And then there was the, the beautiful tablecloth and there were the, the candles. And my grandfather would go, oh, Hazel, do you think you're born the purple? I didn't know what that meant. Or do you think your rich blood is what it kind of stood the same? Mm-hmm. And my grandmother would say to my grandfather, if you don't shut up, because God is coming to this dinner. And I remembered that. God is coming to this dinner. God is a guest. And I learned that my my great-grandfather would actually say this, to say that, that, um, this is actually old Southern way of, old Southern black Christian thing, that Jesus Christ is always a guest at our table. That's why there were no fights. Mm-hmm. There, was, there was no nonsense. So you put all that together, the, the reverence, the holiness, the, the idea that um, you can't control the other parts of the master narrative, but you can control that moment of satisfaction, happiness, healthiness, yeah. wholeness, familyhood. Yeah. You can take that with you. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the real part of what I do. You're, you're talking about love language, right? Love language, yeah. I was, I was walking with my son, who is not the most um, uh, effusive emotionally, right? He, he plays his cards pretty close to his chest, really smart kid. And, you know, we, we raised our kids having Shabbos dinner, and, of course, they hated it. And we, used to, we raised them, blessing them, with, you know, at the, before we ate, and they hated that. They jerked their heads around. And uh, he's now... Um, I've got three kids, and he's the, the middle. He's 24, and a couple of years ago, at the beginning of the pandemic, he got stuck at home. And we went for a walk one day, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, poor guy, we're just driving him nuts, you know. And out of nowhere, he says, Dad, cooking is your love language. And I'd never heard that phrase, you know, love language, I'd never heard that before. And I, it like hit me t- in my bones that like people get it. Eventually they get it. If they're willing to come to your table or you force them to come to your table in our kid's case, but 
if people are coming to your table, not just once, you know, but they know they can count on you to mm-hmm. feed them right. Just sort of what I started out jokingly, but when, when you respect someone and their body and nourishing it and taking the time that we take. Um, I worked as a cook for many, many years, and it takes, you know, it's a hard job. It's a big job. And uh, when you put your love in it, which is what you're talking about with these, you know, with these bubbies and these aunties, that makes a difference in the world. In my kitchen, I, um, you know, I became a homeowner for the first time in my 40s. Thanks, redlining. Um, and on the wall is my mother's, grandmother's, and great-grandmother's hot comb, but done like a mezuzah. So that when I walk into the room, I touch that, that hot comb and the mezuzah. You know, we, you know, anybody who's a black or brown folk know about the kitchen being the, the hairstyling place. And the, sound, the smell and sound of, of their little cousin, the niece, nephew, sister, the grandma, mama hair burning in the kitchen, and the, the Afro sheen, which if you have a bad cook, keep the Afro sheen away from them because they may try to cook some minute. Um, baby. And all of that. I mean, just, and then that, that very old Madam C.J. Walker hot comb that you have to put on a fire on a stove mm-hmm. to use. I kissed that thing, and I, I kissed it before I came here. That energy. Um, I'm so grateful. Speaking of, of tables, the, the cover of the book, um, I didn't want to fail to mention this. You notice that there are all these hollows in front of me. One is blue and white. One is black, red, and green. One is rainbow like a pride holla. Um, and then another one is like sprinkles, rainbow sprinkles, and like black, red, and green, and blue and white. And my um, lovely husband did that um, because I wanted the cover to really reflect the fact that I am not those things apart, I'm those things together. That the braiding, the wholeness is important. Um, And I wanted the reader to feel as though every time that they read something, it was like we were having conversation right now, talking with each other, having our repartee. Um, it's, it's something to imagine that we, we need to be in different places as, as Americans, as black folks, as Jews. You know, the day I go, I saw, I thought I put out this call a couple of years ago and went unheard. But then I saw that the group of Asian Jews on, on Instagram had made, I did an African-American Seder plate. They did an Asian Jewish Seder plate. And I broke into tears. A lady came to my um, presentation at the Smithsonian, and she showed me. And I cried because I said, the fact that this is out there means things are changing. It means things will never be the same again. It means that we're growing, we're overcoming. We're doing something. We're doing the work. And that somebody's child will be able to see themselves reflected in something anew that is... That is you know, expanding the boundary of Torah. 
You're listening to culinary historian and chef Michael W. Twitty, whose new book is Kosher Soul. He's joined in conversation by Monkey Joe Singer on Bina, a series featuring creative voices from the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. Bina is available as a podcast, and you can find it at kalw.org. When we talked about the, the, the bracing the impression through food, but also you just learn. I was on the I, early in the book. I talk about being in on a bus headed towards services, and I meet this great granola Jewish brother, and we're talking. I'm in my little black hat, and he's in his you know red clay sandals, and he never talked to me as if I wasn't. He just said to me, "Are you are you cool? Are you all right where you are?" And I said, I gave all the like corporate answers. And he says, no, 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 are you? And I said, do you love your people? And he said to me, I don't know if you, we can say that you love your people until they really piss you off, you still love them. And I knew exactly what he meant as a black person, as a gay person. I knew exactly what the hell he meant. Nobody annoys me more than LGBTQ people. <laughs> and nobody annoys me more than black folks. Oh my God, Lord, chill. please, please, not today. Not today. Cornell, Cornell, calm down, baby. Just, just comb your hair, wash your face, calm down. Please, Cornell. Don't get me wrong. I, I met Cornell on the train and gave him a copy of the Cooking Gene. He's a very nice man. But it's just like the little squibbles and things we see all the time. It's like, ah. And then Jews, oh my God, you annoy me. I love you, but my God. It's like, it's like I now understand why, why God said, you can't have meat and dairy. Like, before it, was, before it was, okay, sure. Just don't boil a kid in its mother's mug. Then it was like, oh, snap, you made a golden calf? Guess what? No cheeseburger. <laughs> That's because that's what my mom would do, right? It's like, you didn't do what I told you to do? Uh, guess what? Um, but I say that with all due love and respect because it means you have to work with your people. You can't give up on them. Yeah. You got to do what you got to do. You have to, you, have to take, you have to take pause and say, okay, you know what? Mm-hmm. Let's find another way. Instead of just throwing your hands up and becoming, you know whatever, being negative, speaking Lashon HaRa, negative speech about your people, about yourself, about who you are. You know, you, no. You have to go back to the work. You can't give up on the work. Yeah. The word, you know, in Judaism, the word avodah, work, means also prayer. Right. In Latin, from, from English, precare, it's a Latin word of prayer. It means to beg. In Judaism, avodah means worship. It also means work, labor. And serve. And serve, and service. So which is more honest? Or, you know, to go inside and judge yourself before you go and judge others. Before, you, before it's time for God to judge you. Have you done what you need to do? That's why, that's why I, 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 I love Judaism. Um, I'm also not ashamed to say that there's a lot of elements of African spirituality in my life and how important that is to me. And 
it's, I'm coming to a place where there's no master story, but there are answers that I abide by. You know, when your, your ancestors are like your board of directors, you know what's up. That's right. And you know what's not. What yeah, not that's what's right. Up. You put mayonnaise on the pastrami sandwich. You talked I about joke. being seen in one, in one way as being contagious, mm-hmm. right? That people can respond to, um, to those of us who are in the margins, who are the boundary crossers, who shake up the, make people uncomfortable, whatever, right? But you, but you also talked about, there's a, a, you said, I'm never alone if I have my people. Right. right, and sometimes our people are pain in the tuchus. Let's let's face it, but because they're people, um, but you love them anyway, just like the guy on the bus said. And we love you very much. Thank you're, you. You're a blessing. Thank you. Um, yeah. Um, we want to open it up for questions. Um, you know, one thing we we didn't really get into the 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 way that food um, food as sacrament. Food as expression of self, food as um, you know, a reminder, a, a placeholder, a symbol, um, all of those things. And I just, I just want to say, like, with a full heart, that if you, um, if you haven't already read um, the Cooking Gene, you must. It's a really important book. Yeah, if you're, if you're at all, you know, if you recognize the importance of that, what we put in our bodies has a story, and that. It's a story that we are going to continue to tell. Um, Cooking Gene does, does that proud. Um, and this book is just amazing. Just amazing. Um, covers a lot of those other bases. So I wanted to open it up to your questions. And you. um, I think somebody from over here has got the mic. And if you raise your hand, we can uh, get your thoughts on things. Absolutely adore you, Mr. Witte. Thank you for being Thank here. Um, are you going to be involved um, ongoing with High on the Hog as they continue with more uh, docu-series or your own or any other. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. They better call a brother. Um, <laughs> no, we, we, really, we really want to... Uh, we've been doing these, uh, these pilgrimages to West Africa with black chefs who have never been to the continent. And we did a lot of filming in Benin. Um, and we're going to do some more in Cameroon next year and do a whole... whole you know, two weeks there. So we're hoping to do that. It's, it's really tough because on the one hand, I was in High on the Hog, right? But on the other hand, try going to, try going to the powers that be and the gatekeepers and those who control, like, who gets to be on CNN plus, or which is now defunct, or Discovery mm-hmm. or HBO or whatever. Oh, y'all got one black show that's successful? That's great. We don't need no more. But Giada can have an Italian show, and Lydia can have an Italian show, and Sam Lynch can have an Italian show, and there's like eight other Italian shows. Can't get enough Italy. We got 60-some nations in, in Africa, and then an entire African diaspora, but can't, can't represent all the, the myriad of narratives. You know, so um, that's why I, I work hard to build up a platform so we can have these difficult conversations, right? They're really not that difficult, because we both know there's an audience. We both know there's people who want to see 
the real, real diverse content, not just a rehashing. Yeah. And, and when it comes to Jewish food, when have, you, when have you hardly ever seen Jewish food on television other than as a, a bad joke? And I'm, I'm tired of that. I mean, I mean, you know, if, if, the, if the face of pushing back against Jewishness as a joke is mine, I'm cool. I'm good with it. Because, you know, the students who came through my classrooms, the ones I gave to fill into, and, you know, said that you could wear a kimono just the same as anybody else, because they're, they're Japanese Jews and there's a heritage there. I mean, I'm proud of that revolution. I don't, I, you know, I, I, want, I, want, I want people to be able to embrace the old, but also be the new. And maybe one day when our, you know, production media are, are, are encouraged to tell more than just one kind of story, we can do that, hopefully soon. So from your lips to God's answering machine. Um, Michael, thank you so much. No, thank you. The, the, the perfect person to have this with. Well, let's do it some more. Yes, absolutely. Okay. I want to. Um, I want to thank the center, the Jewish Community Center here. I want to thank everyone. I want to thank Bechol Lashon for bringing me here originally many years ago to San Francisco. I, um, I want to thank. Um, um, Rabbi Ruth Adar and Brian Terry and Chef Juan and other people who um, the last time I was here with the cooking gene I felt so welcome and so loved and um, this this place is very special to me um, I am I mean it's been special to me since when I, the first time I was 16 years old and I picked up um, my first introduction to Barbary Lane many years ago and um, I just want to tell you um, from Armistead Mop to now, thank you, San Francisco. Thank you, Bay Area. Thank you, Oakland. Thank you for, you know, being one of the few places in this world where I feel completely me. And, and no apologies needed, effortlessly me. Thank you. Oh. Bina is a co-production of the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco and KALW. For more information about programs at the JCCSF, you can visit jccsf.org. Today's guest was culinary historian and chef Michael W. Twitty, whose new book is Kosher Soul. He was joined in conversation by Maggi Joe Singer. I'm David Kwan, editor and producer of the program. Our theme music is from the album Masada Rock, by the Roshanim Trio. And the music you're hearing right now is by John Zorn. Bina is available as a podcast, and you can find it at kalw.org. Thanks for listening.